Hi, and welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm your co-host, Kat Barnard, and as ever, I'm joined by Jennifer Sproul and Dominic Walters. Today, we are bringing you an extra special bonus episode of the podcast. We are delighted to be joined today by Antonia Bantz, who heads up campaigns, communication and digital at the Trade Union Congress. Obviously, in the UK at the moment, in early 2023, we are faced with industrial action and strike action across a range of sectors and industries that is causing pretty significant disruption to our provision of education and nursing and transportation and postal services. And I'm sure I have forgotten one or two areas there, but it is clear to see that across the labour market, we have conflict and issues to be resolved amongst or between employers and employees. So we were super excited that Antonia agreed to come and chat with us. Um, Since joining the TUC in 2015, Antonia's overseen a massive expansion in the TUC's media and social coverage. She's launched its highly successful TikTok channel and is currently leading campaigns on the cost of living crisis and the industrial action um, that I cited earlier. She's an expert in campaign strategy and issue communications. She was previously policy and communication director for a domestic abuse charity and head of campaigns for the housing charity Shelter. She's a trustee of the Nationwide Foundation and is a former Labour councillor and parliamentary candidate. Antonia, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here and exactly at the right time as well quite literally at exactly the right time. And I know that there will be internal communicators up and down the country really latched onto this episode as soon as it airs. So I wanted to kick off by asking you if you can give us a bit of history about the Trade Union Congress and why it exists. Yes, of course. So I'm here, I'm representing uh, 5.5 million workers around the country who are members of trade unions. Trade union movement, about a century and a half old, a little bit longer now. And our job is to make sure that working people get a voice in how we run our workplaces and more broadly, our economy. Trade unionism is the revolutionary idea that your boss doesn't have all the answers and that workers who produce the goods, who produce the profit, should have a say in how their workplaces are run and should have dignity at work. Our job now, a century a century and a half on from the formation of trade unions, has changed in some ways. You know, we represent people working in call centres and offices. We represent people working in the public services. We represent people working in factories and in high-tech and science industries as well. But some of what we do is exactly the same. It's the day-to-day business of helping or helping uh, employees negotiate 
with their management, get a better deal on issues to do with conditions, terms at work to do with pay, representing individuals where they're involved in disciplinary, in grievance uh, and in redundancy processes. So that's the job. That's what we're about. There are about 50 or so unions that are members of the TUC and you'll know many of the largest ones, Unison, Unite, for example, and some of our smaller unions like the unions that represent the train staff. But we have unions who represent people in every sector of the economy. And our job is to get a better deal for working people. What I find interesting about it is that many people tend to make an assumption about trade unions that they are obstructive and divisive and problematic for employers. But I'm really drawn to what you have to say about enabling employee voice, not least because last year we invited David McLeod to come and speak with us. And David McLeod had... um, been the author, chief researcher and author of a report that was commissioned in the first instance, I think, by the late Labour government in 2008. The report was called Engaging for Success. And in the course of his research, he'd identified that employee voice was one of the primary pillars of employee engagement. So this this idea of voice is is really topical and poignant for us in on this podcast. How does trade union membership enable employee voice? So your internal communicators will have a whole suite of tools at their disposal to enable employee voice and employee engagement. And we know that engaged employees, employees who feel um, that they have a sense of purpose, are driven to work for the organisation, understand their place in the company's strategy, they will perform better. Yeah, that's a common place. But achieving it is hard. And so looking to those tools that internal communicators have in their toolbox to support that One of the key ways, I would say, is through having a representative body like a trade union recognised by the employer with the right to negotiate on behalf of the people who work there with management on those key issues, pay, terms and conditions, dignity at work. Now, a recognised trade union has legal rights. Companies have to sit down around the table and negotiate, usually on an annual basis around pay and ongoing conversations to problem solve what's going on in that company, in its workplaces and in its business to head off problems before they start. Where there are really good relationships with employee trade unions, the relationship extends further. Trade unions have always been a big part of our adult skills agenda in this country. We used to teach people to read and write. We still do. We teach IT skills all over the country and we broker the type of adult skills development that helps people get on in their careers, progress, meet their aspirations. And we often do that in partnership with employers. So there's a really strong role for unions in enabling employee voice, in part because managers have to talk to us because we have, when we're recognised, the legal status that means those negotiations have to happen because we are independent of the workplace, which is really different to the sort of employee resource groups and employee councils that you see in some workplaces, which exist at the whim of management. And that's fine. 
But that doesn't replace a trade union independent of management. Now, we all know that healthy, strong organisations are organisations where people with a diversity of viewpoints feel like they can be heard, feel like they can express themselves and be authentic. And in, you know, those are some of the buzzwords of our modern internal communications environment. And trade unionism is a way for some of the difficult messages to come out sometimes, for there to be a structure for working together to make working life better. And what I would say is you're absolutely right, Kat. Some of the reputation of trade unions is adversarial. And sometimes we have to reach into our toolbox for the more adversarial tactics, like going on strike. But that happens when managers won't talk, won't engage, won't sit down, won't negotiate because it takes two to tango. So if you want good industrial relations in your organisation, we all know how to achieve it, which is let's sit down around the table together and work it out. That's what we want to do. That's always what we want to do. And we wouldn't be in the situation we're in more broadly in the external environment if ministers who are the ultimate employers of many of the people who are on strike saw it as their job to sit down and negotiate with unions. Wow. I'm going to pass the mic because I will hog the mic. I've got so many thoughts on this. But I just want to say, again, the timeliness of this episode seems so opposite to me because you know, it's like less than a fortnight that the Edelman Trust Barometer was published for 2023. And the research in that report this year has pointed to a a massive uptick in a sense of uh, societal divisiveness and concern about a lack of social cohesion. And I think, you know, bluntly, it is right to say, you know, We've all watched the media where, you know, our politicians are unwilling to sit down and have a conversation of any type with trade union representatives. And where are we as a society if we are unwilling to sit down and have those difficult conversations, which is a topic really close to my heart. And I know we're we're trying to address at the Institute, but I will hand over the mic now to somebody else because I will just be here all day. Well, Kat, let me let me pick it up from you because I'm telling you, it'd be great to talk a bit more about the phrase you use about it takes two to tango, which I think is a really good one because what you've touched upon, I don't think the relationship between internal communication and trade union hasn't always been smooth and lovely. And I know that from my own experience when I was internal communication manager and I know it now from working with clients. So I think some of the, looking at it from the internal communication side of things, the frustrations they have are that trade unions don't have to go through the same sign-off procedures as internal communicators often have to, so they can be quicker. Trade unions can often use more inflammatory language, perhaps. They can be more polemical about, is that a word, polemical? They can definitely be more emphatic about things, whereas internal communicators cannot. I know there's a lot of frustration there, but I also know there's loads of scope for working well together. So it'd be great, first of all, to get your take on, on how you think internal communication professionals, the vast majority of people listening to this, can work with trade unions to make sure people are informed. Because I guess what we say around communication is about helping people understand what's going on so they can make informed decisions. So how can we work together as communicators and unions? Big question. Sorry, long question. I think it's a really, really important relationship, Dom. Like, so... In a situation where you're in, you're working in a unionised environment, 
you've obviously got messages coming out on behalf of management from internal communicators, but also you've got internal communicators who are holding the ring on some of the really important spaces, whether it be in person, like all staff meetings, departmentals, that sort of thing, or whether it be online with people using some of the software, like the workplace systems and so forth, to communicate with each other informally, uh, and the spaces on our intranet. So you've got internal communicators who are holding the space where some of the most important conversations happen. What I would say is firstly, I would encourage colleagues from internal communications to remember their professional values, why they came into this role, what it is they see their role as doing, why they felt it was so important that they dedicated their professionalism to making sure organisations work better. And like helping focus on why you're doing this helps you to make good judgments about how you negotiate those tricky relationships. Yeah, there are always going to be tricky moments in a relationship. You're absolutely right. Sometimes unions can react more quickly. Sometimes uh, internal communicators have to wait for sign off or have to be less black and white in their communications. But they can also facilitate the type of useful conversations that mean that we get to discussion and negotiation rather than things always being black and white and adversarial. So I would encourage internal communicators to think hard about how they hold spaces for staff discussion. I would encourage internal communicators to remember that in this country, everyone has a legal right to be a member of a trade union. And where unions are recognised, those unions have a legal right to be consulted and to be part of negotiations around pay, terms and conditions. We are very lucky that for the most part, it's not like the US where membership of a union is victimised. But in some organisations, that is the case still. And we've certainly seen that, uh, particularly in some of the organisations where the parent companies are American, for example, and they don't understand the industrial relations environment. So I think internal communicators need to work from their values. And sometimes they're going to need to preserve a space that feels uncomfortable for management. Yeah. A healthy organisation does not shut down conversations that aren't always complimentary. It finds a space and a way to incorporate those conversations into a healthy discussion that strengthens the organisation, demonstrates that it's possible to hold a diversity of viewpoints. I think also that there is something really important to remember here, which is there may be an industrial dispute in your organisation now. It may be difficult now around this pay round or around this round of redundancies or around this change to the way that work is structured and what that means for people's jobs. But tomorrow and next month and next year, internal communicators will still be working in a recognised organisation where there is a trade union. People will still need to be represented in disciplinaries and grievances. And next year, there'll be a round of pay talks and the year after. And as the law changes and workplace practice changes, there'll be new things to negotiate on. So what I would say to internal communicators is whatever you do, don't burn your bridges because next month, next year, you'll need to be talking to the reps again. You'll need to be working out how the union is represented on your intranet, how you work together to solve issues in the workplace. And if you've burned those bridges, everything is going to be harder. 
Now, that may involve sometimes having a difficult conversation with management as well. Managers sometimes want to do, we can say it amongst ourselves, can't we? Frankly, stupid things where it comes to communicating uh, with their staff members. They have bright ideas. They're not always the best. You're really skilled at pushing back on some of the not always the best ideas already. And, you know, a particular area where not always the best ideas come out can be in relations with unions. I feel particularly for colleagues working in internal communications at Royal Mail, where their chief executive is engaged in a disaster class of how not to communicate with their own staff team. There are much, much better ways of doing it. And if we remember our values, work from our values, remember how important open communication and enabling a diversity of voices within the appropriate bounds of a professional environment, you know, that will help facilitate better resolutions to problems. I'll tell you, thank you very much. There's huge amounts of great stuff in what you've just said. So I think three things that come out that really strike a chord in what we've been hearing in other podcasts and, and my words, but one of them is sometimes internal communicators, it's hard to understand who we work for. Do we work for the organisation? Are, are we propagandists for, for a business or for an organisation? Are we the voice of the people, if you like? And of course, the, the truth is somewhere in between. We have to make sure that people know what's going on. But I think you've highlighted that. You've also highlighted the importance of conversation. And that's something I think has been in virtually every podcast we've done that the role for line managers and leaders when it comes to communication is not necessary to go out and articulate with Churchillian brilliance, although if they can do that, that's great. It's about having conversations. I think you've really highlighted that. And the other thing, which is crucial, and funny enough, I've just seen this as a client I'm working with at the moment that uh, is facing potential industrial action, and the, the, the head of the this organisation has said exactly what you said, actually, which is tomorrow. We've got to think about tomorrow. <laughs> We can't charge in and cause mayhem because it's going to destroy future relationships. So with that backdrop, it would be great to hear from you about some examples, and if not examples, some things that we can do to make sure we strike a balance. Bearing in mind that HR and comms and PR are sometimes going to have objectives that that are contrary to the trade union. We get that. But notwithstanding that, what can we do to strike a useful balance to collaborate? And if possible, can you give us some examples? Not necessarily naming names, but give us some scenarios. Another massive question. Sorry, Antonia. No, no, not at all. I think this is a really interesting area to talk about. And I should say that our job in the trade union movement is to be on the side of working people. I'm here today talking to you as internal communicators because you're working people, because I'm a professional communicator and because I think we could do this better. But at the end of the day, I want to make sure working people have their voice heard and win their disputes and win decent pay and conditions. Having said that, some of the best practices that I think internal communicators can engage in, well, there are a number. The first thing I would say is it is better for organisations if people have constructive ways to raise issues and solve problems. Now, I believe that people being recognised through a union is the best way to do that because of the independence that brings, because of the legal protection for that independence and for those rights to negotiate. So I would encourage internal communicators, 
working with their HR and PR colleagues to think about how they can ensure that unions have an opportunity to communicate with new starters early on and to bring them into their union. Because rather than diffuse discontent spilling out of the sides of your organisation, showing up on those websites that rate employers and employee experience, you want productive internal channels where you find out first what's going wrong. And unions are incredibly helpful in identifying problems, in escalating them and getting them to the table where they can be solved, both formally and informally. So think about some of the structures. Do you have meetings during inductions? Do you send your new starters along to meet a rep? Do you have protected space on your intranet for information about the union? Do you ensure that union business can appropriately and within bounds be conducted within working hours and on working facilities? You know, all of that piece is definitely worth thinking about. And that's not just for internal communicators. Then I always say to unions that it makes more sense to hold their communications outside of corporate systems. So I try and discourage people from holding union conversations on corporate email systems and on corporate intranets. Uh, and on corporate, um, I don't know what you call them, corporate internal social media, perhaps like workplace and Yammer, you know what I mean. And because, you know, that offers, you know, it's, it's the company's tools. So whilst I think it's absolutely appropriate for there to be protected space on the internet for formal information, I would encourage informal conversations to happen on other channels. I don't think they should be banned. It's for the protection of the individuals and to ensure that conversations about you know, union strategy, union priorities are held in a place where they are not subject to management surveillance. And that's the reality in some workplaces. I mean, those would be my top two things, thinking about how we facilitate some protected space uh, and some early introductions. I guess the other thing I would say is where there is a dispute or the beginnings of a dispute or a difference of opinion, I think it's really important that internal communicators do their level best to help management be transparent about the decisions they're taking. Now, I'm thinking of a small dispute in a private organisation that I was involved in recently, where there was a real difference in access to financial information and strategy information about the direction of that business. And it actually ended up in a strike when it wasn't clear to the employees of that charity, and it was a charity, why they weren't being offered a pay rise, when an appropriate pay rise, given the levels of inflation, why that charity was holding the level of reserves, which was significantly above what the Charity Commission says they have to hold. Now, that conversation clearly hadn't happened. Clearly, the management of that organisation hadn't felt able to sit round a table and say, here are the books. This is the situation we face. This is the strategy of our organisation. Now, that might not have stopped the dispute or the industrial action, but it might have done. And why didn't management try that tactic? Why didn't management... In some organisations, it may be possible to share more with an entire staff team. In some organisations, it may not, and it may need to be reps and conveners. But like, there's a real... The spirit of the day is openness and transparency unless we have a reason not to be open and transparent, as opposed to keep it all tight unless we have a reason to tell people. 
and that should be brought through to relationships with unions. And I guess just I'll pass over to Mike, but just picking up on that point, as you say, even if it doesn't resolve, then it changes the whole tone and it builds on future relationships. So I think someone once said to me as an internal communicator, when you're communicating a change is unpopular, one of the best things that people can say is, we hate what you've done, but the way you've done it at least felt involving and we felt we were being informed. So uh, yes, fantastic points. Thank you. Oh, Antonio, thank you so much. I've been listening and scribbling notes and there's so much that you've said that that just resonates with me and, and resonates with the Institute as well and what we stand for about, we talk a lot about our purpose to make people feel like they matter at work by being informed, being respected, being valued and communication is such a fundamental discipline to creating that and I've been trying to, to land this while well, that return on emotion, actually, if we feel emotionally connected, actually how we approach even difficult situations, which can't always be avoided, is really important. And actually, there's some just picking up on what you were talking about then as well, about openness, honesty, transparency. I was doing some sessions last year around the cost of living. And one of my pushbacks as well was, well, how is the organisation being transparent and making their finances accessible understandable, relatable information. And actually, a lot of this is if you go back to those fundamental principles and those values that you talk about, actually can help, as you say, it can't always stop what's going to happen, but it might ease the way we do that because actually we're more well-informed and understanding of those of those decisions. And I've spoken to a number of our members who are, are dealing with this industrial action for the first time they haven't experienced how you communicate in this and and what's the right thing to say and how do I deal with management and how do I make sure our ongoing communication is correct and it's a really dangerous uh, not dangerous concerning space to be in because you don't want to get that wrong as a communicator you feel perhaps quite exposed I think is how we perhaps feel and vulnerability is quite difficult but going back a little bit of a step of what you were saying in terms of the messages that we send out, we know that relationships, conversation are going to be fundamental. But there's also this huge part of broadcasts that we are responsible to as well. And information that we are sending out to our employees on a daily basis. And I guess from your experience in that kind of context, when particularly when these, these things are going on, what is it that actually employees need to hear from their employees versus what they get and is do you see that imbalance so i think those broadcast communications are really really interesting we've all had lots of experience of reading and writing in many cases the type of a centrally driven communication about big issues that affect everybody whether it be about structural changes to the nature of the business which has an employee impact whether it be about pay settlements you know other uh, obviously during the pandemic there was calls for an awful lot of all employee communication that just communicated what the new rules were what the expectations in workplaces were now what i would suggest is that where it is relevant, it is absolutely appropriate to signpost to the union uh, as a source of help and support and to signpost where things are subject to negotiation. I think that makes sense. Now, many organisations will have other health help sources of help and support. People will be signposting to employee advice services. They'll be signposting to staff wellbeing services in, in large organisations. You know, But alongside those, I think it's appropriate to signpost to unions, particularly in a unionised organisation. 
I do also think we've spoken about openness, honesty and transparency as communicators. And, and that is my professional role as well as all of yours, uh, albeit that I do it in the union movement. We know that you have to over communicate. Yeah. Don't do it once if you can do it twice and don't do it twice if you can do it seven times. The opportunity to ensure that we are living our values, using the channels that we know that our colleagues access in the language that works for them, being open and clear about the respective roles of management of unions and being respectful of the people that work for us. At all times, your employees have chosen to be members of this union. They pay money every month to be members of this union. They have voted to have this union recognised by your company or maybe you've recognised them voluntarily. If you're in a situation of industrial action, they have passed really high ballot thresholds. And if you get to the situation of industrial action, oh my goodness, are your people cross with you? Because they have, it is really hard to get a mandate for strike action. I think sometimes people don't realise the level of red tape. You have to have a legitimate industrial dispute. You have to ballot by post. You're not allowed to do it online. You have to ballot by post every single member affected. You have to get not just a majority to take action, but you have to get past the 50% threshold of people taking part in that ballot. And those are really, really high thresholds. It's even higher in the public sector. Those are really high thresholds that don't apply to any other vote in any other area of our lives. The Conservative Party, the Labour Party can elect their leaders by online ballots. Trade unions can't vote for strike action online. Any local councillor, I I defy you to find me a local councillor that was elected with a turnout of more than 50%. I don't think there's one in the country that would claim that mandate and not all of our MPs either. So you've really got into a spot if you're talking about industrial action. Your staff are really cross with you. And actually, internal comms, thinking about how you fix that, thinking about what happens after, thinking about that long-term relationship as you communicate legitimately management's position during the strike, that's really, really important because they are still going to work for you in a couple of weeks' time and you're still going to be negotiating with that union in a couple of weeks' time. Gosh, that's fascinating. And actually to really understand the level of red tape and how significant it has to be for industrial action to even take place. And I think some of the members who I've spoken to as well are at that balloting point and they're sort of going, what do we do around that? And and how do we make, you know, do we, should we try to communicate our ways out of that or help, you know, influence that balloting? But I I guess that's that's a tricky one, but actually they're aware it's happening, but actually how are we communicating whilst the ballot is taking place? Should we be looking at, how we're driving that, dialing up our openness and our transparency to help whatever may happen have a more, I guess, uh, positive negotiation or, or or leads towards that right outcome. I mean, that's just, just, I think, those trying to understand also what that communication l- happens at the time of ballot, not just the time of decision as well and what that looks like. And I guess the question that I'm getting from that as well from internal communicators is, how do we make, and links back to what Don was saying earlier, our role of this bridge where we sit between the two around that. But whilst that's all going on, whether that's communication pre-ballot, during ballot, post-ballot, during action, 
what do we do in terms of our BAU communication? And actually, does it damage the reputation of internal communication that we've had to get to this point? When actually our job is a lot about building, helping to build great culture and experiences and set that right tone. How do I manage a BAU set of communication alongside this industrial action piece that's going on, whether that's pre during or post-ballot or during negotiation. Does an organisation you think need to flip its tone or its style during that time? Or do you think it's, it, it, how do you balance that so that when you come out the other side, that you can keep make sure those relationships and that feeling around culture and trust is, is to some degree where best it can be maintained? So lots in that one. And I think I'm going to start here. And this is where I'm going to sound a little sterner, frankly. If internal communicators are given a mandate to try and influence a ballot outcome, I believe they should think carefully about their professionalism, about their values and about what is appropriate. Many internal communicators will themselves be members of unions and I would encourage every internal communicator to join a union because you never know when that redundancy is coming for you or that reorganisation is coming for you and you have costs and bills to pay just like everybody else. It is not ethical for internal communicators to be put in a position where managers are asking them to say to staff how they should be voting. It is entirely appropriate to communicate factual information about the nature of the offer, but they should do that in an understanding and an awareness of what it may do to their reputation if they go beyond that. And I would urge colleagues to think carefully about that. Now, you work for organisations too. And it's not always possible to say no. I understand that. But it is not ethical to be trying to encourage people not to turn out or to vote no in an industrial action. It's also not appropriate for you to be talking about how they should vote at all. So there's that point. In terms of the business as usual communication, well, I know I've said it, but it, it bears repeating. Like, this relationship is going to endure after this difficulty. You may be in a row about pay. You may be in a row about redundancies and changed working practices. But that equal opportunities policy, that flexible working policy, that discussion that you're committed to about learning opportunities or an office relocation or something else, that is still going on. And there is an opportunity to ensure that you continue to communicate with your staff teams and work with your stakeholders internally, including your union, on the issues that are your business as usual. And I think I think it's really, really tricky because on the one hand, internal communicators talking about things that aren't the issue of the dispute could be seen to be ignoring the key issues. And certainly in an environment like a workplace or so on, we've seen communications about other things be absolutely swamped by individual workers who have questions about the nature of the ongoing dispute, feel like they're not being listened to about that. So think about how on the one hand you acknowledge and create space for the ongoing dispute and hold any conversation around that. But on the other hand, continue to prioritise that business as usual. And you will know your organisations and you will know what works. It may not make sense to do your jolly, jolly communication about, you know, one of the flag days for a charity you support as a company or, you know, one of the jolly you know what I mean, days of note. There are a number that we do, mental health days that we mark. We mark, you know, International Women's Day, some of the pride celebrations and so forth. 
that may or may not be appropriate. You'll know your workforce and you'll know what is appropriate in the course of a more heated situation of industrial relations internally. I would just like to chime in really quickly because something that is coming through thick and fast for me, particularly in 2023, you know, our day job is to analyse future of work trends and explore risks and opportunities that those trends, when they converge, create for organisations. And one of the things that's really striking me, and we ran a workshop on this yesterday, is this idea of, um, you know, people within organisations. And I think this probably contributes to a large part of the tensions that exist within workforces today. You know, people are sick and tired of having become cogs in the wheel or just feeling like they are cogs in the wheel. That is clearly causing the tensions that are then being labelled as quiet quitting, great reshuffle, whatever, whatever, whatever. But one of the things that I think here is that actually nobody can possibly know what lies down the path for us now. There are too many external forces converging to create complete ambiguity out in the wider marketplace. And I think it's incumbent on all of us If we value our own capabilities and competences and skills and what have you, we do have to now question whether we are willing to continue to just act as order takers by management or whether we, to your exact point, Antonia, about values, whether it is time for us to gracefully and articulately say, no, I need to push back on this because you are not seeing the full picture. Let me explain to you the world as I see it so that we can reach some common ground of consensus. But just, you know, I understand the tensions here because if you're worried about your job stability, the chances are you're just going to put your head down and do what you are asked to do. But there is too much greater market complexity now for us to do that. If I know something isn't right in my field of vision about the way in which I am being asked to undertake my daily roles and responsibilities, it is on me to gracefully and articulately and diligently push back and say, can we just discuss this? Because I don't see the world as you see it. And my worry about taking this order from you is that these things might happen. And I genuinely and wholeheartedly think we have to start looking more broadly and systemically than these kind of like micro silos into which we have become entrenched over the last five years. I'm going to get off my soapbox, but I wonder whether anyone's got any thoughts on that. I was just going to jump in, Kat, as well, and and pick up on what you're saying and, and, and everything that we just talked about as well. And going back to the beginning when we were talking about this is that ability to have relationships, conversation, 
you know, and difficult things as to hold our values, as Antonio says, as professional communicators. More and more are we being challenged as a professional community to, as we say, stick to our values and say no. But actually it's pushing us as a professional community, perhaps when our job has been to be just a where we are perhaps perceived wrongly or we sit somewhere somewhere wrongly by management just to be, send that out because I want that out. So there's the point, I think, around how we help facilitate just daily dialogue in our organisations to keep relationships strong, keep things open, keep conversation going. But I think there is a new challenge incumbent on us as a professional community, more and more so, to say no and to be respected for no and that that's okay. And I think that's a... Um, a challenge we're all trying to grapple with as well. And it will all depend as well. And I know talking to, to internal communicators that context can be really different depending on your size of team, your organisation, your type of management, where you're working. This is just in the everyday life of being an internal communicator. But we do need to stick with those values and to stick back and to push back. And I sometimes worry this is my soapbox, that we are not investing enough of our own skills or our own learnings or our own time to handle discourse and difficult conversation, whether that's within our employee groups or with us as professional communicators in how we're revising backwards as well. And that's maybe, because it's difficult, it's horrible. No one likes to be in it, but it's, I think, a place we need to embrace. But maybe that's my soapbox as well, Kat. (laughs) I think what I've loved most about this conversation with Antonia is, well, in addition to to having the TUC conversation broken down into really kind of understandable component parts, what I think I've loved the most is your point, Antonia, about why people become internal communicators and and the and the marriage of an interest in the skill set and the values that you hold at a personal level. Like, I don't think we have enough conversation about that in our working lives when we think about why we make the choices that we do about the professions that we pursue. But I love the fact that you have said very emphatically that the role of internal communication is values-driven, Like, if you end up doing this work, it is because, ostensibly, you have a set of values that's, in whichever way, linked to a passion for communication and relationship and the interconnectedness of people and people's part and roles that they play in community and consensus building and so on. I could go on, but that really has been the role jelly of this for me today. If I could pick up on that, Kat, and then perhaps come back to Antonio to bring this into land. I think um, one of the things about this, I think we have to be careful what we push back on. And so I think if we go back to a um, to some employer, to some organisations and, and say, and I know you're not saying this, but say this doesn't sit with my values, some are going to say, well, in that case, we're going to give you plenty more time to sit with your conscience and, and thank you and goodbye. So I think what we have to do, and I, I know that's not what you're saying, what we have to do is point out the ramifications of certain courses of action. And I think that what's come through very clearly from Antonio, which to be honest, I hadn't really thought of, is your point about people don't go on strike willy-nilly. And I think sometimes there's a narrative in certain aspects of the media to say that striking is an activity people do as a sport. And what you've made very clear is it's nowhere near that. And 
add it to all the complications you mentioned, of course, people are losing quite a lot of pay from doing this as well. So I think we've got a role to make employers understand that we've got here because things have gone badly wrong. And that's something that's come out very clearly. I think two other points that's come out is how we as communicators can use work with trade unions to be part of the employee voice. And Antonio, you said this phrase about discontent spilling out of the seams of the organisation, which is fantastic. And it's something we don't talk about enough. How do we make sure that we, we may help people be advocates by giving them something to be excited and proud about rather than the opposite? I think that came through very quickly. And then the, second, the last thing for me which came out of this is about conversations, how important conversations are. And let's have conversations wherever we can, bringing the unions into that conversation rather than having them and seeing them as some sort of awkward presence that go outside all that. So I'm going to ask the $64,000 question, which is against all that or with all that in the background, what's one key thing, what's one key opportunity that you see in the coming year or so for internal communications based on on your and the TUC's experience? So I think the key opportunity that I see is this renewed focus on employee voice and this new understanding of the way that unions work. We are seeing a significant rise in the number of people who are choosing to join trade unions. And over the coming year, that will translate into more unionised environments and more organisations having to negotiate conversations, discussions, negotiations with staff trade unions for the first time. So I think the opportunity here is to think about how internal communicators can thoughtfully engage with representative independent employee bodies like unions in a way that is consistent with their values, understanding the constraints that you've laid out, Dom. And you are right, there are constraints. We work in um, sometimes hierarchical organisations and no one needs to tell trade unions about the coercive uh, ability of the boss to get people to do what they want. Uh, You know, that's why we exist. So perhaps internal communicators may need unions sometimes. I guess I hope what has come through in this conversation is that I'm a communicator. I love communicators. Our profession is brilliant. We work from a values base because we care and believe in the power of good communication to facilitate better outcomes, more productive workplaces where people are happier to spend all of those hours that we spend at work and places that support us to get work-life balance and to build the lives and the futures for ourselves and our families that we aspire to. I hope colleagues listening, working in internal comms, perhaps in some difficult environments and sometimes at some tricky points in relations with staff unions, uh, particularly in the public sector where many internal communicators and their immediate managers will not be in control of the settlement that can be made with their staff team. Take a little bit of heart from this conversation. You know, we can build better relationships. We can work in a way that is thoughtful and discursive And hopefully in the future, approaching difficulties in that way can help us avoid some of this very, very adversarial strike action that we've seen. Now, we'll always keep that in our back pocket because there will always be bosses that don't listen and don't negotiate. And internal communicators need the tools to deal with those situations too. I have loved talking to you about this conversation and about this topic. And um, it's been absolutely delightful and helped me think about some of the difficulties that face your members and some of the dilemmas that they face. So thank you so much for inviting me. 
Oh, Antonia, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've learned so much and I know our, our people tuning in will find this incredibly valuable. So thank you so much for your time. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected and inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.